This is episode number 355, Uncovering Confidence and Camaraderie in Sports and Relationships with Kara Goucher. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. But looking back, I try to give myself a lot of grace too. But I will say, I always had a pang in my stomach of like, ugh, I hate this. I hate that they're talking about me like this. I hate that these jokes are going off all around me. I hate that I pretend like I don't care. And so you have intuition for a reason. And I think I, as athletes, we bury a lot of things because we nothing can get in the way of what our goal is. But I wish I hadn't buried my intuition so much. And when you have those feelings or those little alarm bells, they're there for a reason. And they're telling you, this is not acceptable. This is not right. Like, this isn't where you want to be. I've just come off of a three-week racing block. And as Matt and I were talking about it, he said, I don't remember the last time you did three races in a row, even since before we had kids. So it's been a while since I've put myself up to this kind of challenge Uh, If you've listened to some of my previous episodes in the last couple of weeks, you may have heard that I did a trail running race that was a half marathon distance about that was the first one of the three. And that went really well. I felt great. I followed my process. I'm still really learning how to trail run and what effort I can hold and that kind of thing. And I was able to win the women's race and get third in the men. The next race was the following weekend in Whistler called the Back 40, which is the most technical cross country mountain bike race on the planet. And they sent us down Enduro World Series downhills in the same downhills used in the Trans-BC Enduro, but on our cross-country bikes in the rain. I was really proud of my preparation for that race. I got to pre-ride some of those descents, and I had to become a better rider. And I rode them well in the race in really difficult conditions. The thing that didn't go well was that I was not recovered at all from the running race. So I learned that I need more than five days to recover from a trail half marathon It was an experiment that unfortunately went awry for me, but I still had a lot of great wins and takeaways that I actually read in the podcast last week because I assess what went well whenever I finish a race and what learnings I can take away. A lot of times we will get really critical and only focus on all the things that we did wrong. So I actually encourage you next time you take on a challenge and complete it, or maybe you don't complete it, Assess what went well in addition to what didn't go well, because that is a key for also learning things and building confidence for next time. Then I wrapped up the three-week block with a doozy. We just got home yesterday. It was a 120-kilometer mountain bike race. That is about 75 miles for all of my American folk out there. And not only was it that long, it was 10,500 feet of climbing, or in my race, it was over 11,000 feet of climbing. This race was called the Merritt Crown. It was self-navigated and a massive loop around the town of Merritt, BC. It was very challenging to navigate. I do a lot of navigation on my own when I'm out riding, but a lot of the places you went on your bike were places that you wouldn't think that you would go, like 
opening up a barbed wire gate to a cow pasture and riding your bike through a hilly cow pasture without a trail or almost having to bushwhack to find a small trail on the side of the mountain and that type of thing. So everybody was posed with this challenge and some people did really well and didn't get lost at all. Others weren't so fortunate and had extra challenges and extra hike a bike and extra elevation gain like me. And other people even got so lost that they quit the race because they were just so far off course. Now, I don't make this out to sound like a horrible time. As their website says, it is 120 kilometers of mountain bike misery, but it was an adventure. It was something completely different to try. It was a really hard race and I'm proud of completing it. Just finishing that thing is a big deal. I followed my racing plan and it's really important to create a racing plan for yourself whenever you are doing races because it's so easy to get caught up in it. So that meant going slower than I wanted off the start and letting a lot of people, uh, especially men, ride away from me. Bridging up to, I don't know exactly where I was, but I think I was about in fourth place overall and the men in the last hour and a half to two hours of the race. Then going off course quite a ways and not knowing exactly how many people got in front of me at that point, but it was quite a bit of men. And I ended up finishing 13th overall in the men and really struggling at the finish. I burned all my matches on that last little section and I was proud to finish and just to get there. And even even funnier, <laughs> near the end, we had to get into this trail system and there was an orange construction rope across this construction area. And there is the smallest piece of flagging on it. So occasionally they would have a very small piece of, of uh, pink flagging, no arrows, nothing like that. And the flagging was tied to the orange rope. So you didn't know if you were supposed to go right or left of this rope, if you're supposed to go underneath the rope. But by using the GPS, I ascertained that I was supposed to go underneath said construction rope. So it was pretty much a big adventure. And <laughs> I'm still kind of laughing about the whole thing. It was an eight hour race for me. So that was my longest race, my longest ride in about a year and good preparation for what's coming. The High Cascades 100, which I actually will say that is easier than what I just did because I did the High Cascades last year as my first race back uh, with a newborn after a three year hiatus from racing due to the pandemic and two pregnancies. So there you have it. That is what I have been up to. We have a fun summer planned and something that I wanted to give you a heads up about, especially if you are in Colorado, is that I'm hosting an event along with Mike McCormick, who you heard just last week on the podcast called the Women's Cycling Summit. It's to help women turn intention into action and to break down barriers to go after that thing that you want to do. In addition to having a number of very inspiring guest speakers and panels, we have tech clinics and group rides and even how to use your GPS, which maybe I need to go back and take that course or that go to that talk from Cindy Wong. You can find that at womenscyclingsummit.com. It is a free event. And right now you just drop us your email and we will send you the details as we get closer. And there is a sample schedule up there as well. So as you just heard, I've been pushing myself pretty hard. I have been riding a fatigue train trying to figure out how to do all of these races back to back. And now I need to recover so that I can start training hard again because I have a bunch of races coming up and I hope that I'm recovered in time to actually do the work to prepare for them. And as a big part of that, I am really auditing my nutrition. And there are a couple things that I'm really focused on. Number one, I noticed that I haven't been eating enough greens and enough fruit. So I'm going to rectify that by having a green smoothie every single day. And in addition to that, whenever I am breaking down my body so much, I like to have a little bit of extra protein. 
Well, a lot of us are not even sure how much protein we really need. Everyone just thinks, I need more protein. If you are an athlete, you need about 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. So you can calculate that. I've been super busy trying to get way ahead on the podcast and a number of other things in preparation for going to Colorado for the month of August. And then I'm also starting my master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania in the Applied Positive Psychology Department or the MAP degree. So I'm trying to get my ducks in a row before all of these things start happening. And that sometimes means that I don't have enough time to eat the meals that I want to eat and to make sure that I'm getting enough protein. So I have been taking the Prevenix Neurofi Plus plant-based protein supplement in addition to all of the meals that I'm eating. And I'm noticing that I am feeling a lot better after doing that. And it's not just a protein supplement. It's not just a protein shake, but it, it, it contains high quality vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants with a probiotic and a digestive enzyme blend that supports gut and overall health. So this is awesome. It is all plant-based. You can get 10 to 20 grams of high quality protein per serving, and it's also allergen free. Why is this good for athletic recovery, you may ask? Well, it contains all branched-chain amino acids, which help stimulate protein synthesis, reduce muscle breakdown, and aid recovery. So it's pretty important for getting back out there. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I am a big believer in Prevenex as they have pharmaceutical-grade ingredients, the highest quality testing, and I've even had David Block, the founder and CEO on the podcast, who used to be a research analyst for supplement companies. So he's seen it all, and that is why he started Prevenex. Their multivitamin is also a daily driver for me, and my son also takes their children's multivitamin called Supervites. If you want to try it for yourself, and I encourage that you do, you can get 15% off using the code SONYA15, that is S-O-N-Y-A-15, for 15% off at Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And they also have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So for any reason, if you are not enjoying or feeling the benefits of these supplements, you can get your money back. So give it a try. Let me know what you think. I certainly am benefiting from this, and I can't wait for you to as well. So let's get on to today's incredible guest, Kara Goucher. I have been admiring Kara Goucher from afar. She is a long-distance ultra runner. She's an Olympian, an author, and a mother. Her journey has taught her the power of self-belief paired with the support of others. In her new book, which is a New York Times bestseller, The Longest Race, and through her advocacy for women's rights, she encourages us all to rise above doubt and pressure to become our most authentic selves. If you're thinking about getting this book, I highly recommend the audiobook where Kara reads it herself and I devoured it. I was super angry while listening to it because it is about all the things that happened to her at the Nike Oregon Project and about her career. It's an inspiring read. It is also an outrageous read and I highly encourage you to pick it up and read it. In this episode, Kara shares her experiences in life and sport with me and my co-host, Travis Macy. Travis Macy has also been on this podcast a few times, and we have tag-teamed interviewing a couple of guests. He always brings a lot of awesome insight, and it was really cool to be able to do this with Travis. So Kara has represented the USA at the Beijing and London Olympics and finished third at the Boston Marathon. Despite facing challenges in pregnancy and athletics, she has persevered and now advocates for women's rights in the male-dominated world of sports and offers opportunities for men to join the conversation. Travis and I did something really interesting for this podcast. So the first half of this episode is on my podcast, and you can catch the second half on Travis's show. So in this episode, we talk about Kara's new book and what she learned from writing. 
We talked about the importance of camaraderie and competition in sport and relationships. We talked about pregnancy, motherhood, and endurance sports, things that you've heard me talk about a lot as I had to battle some of the problems in sports as I endured being a pregnant athlete. We talked about overcoming the pressure to be one of the guys, autonomy and joy in running while holding the weight of expectations. And we also talked about the interplay between self-belief and support from others. After you're done listening here and you go over to the Travis Macy Show podcast, you will also hear part two of our conversation where Kara offers insights into battling imposter syndrome, the thrill of winning a medal. Plus, Kara shares advice for parents navigating disordered eating and body image with young athletes. So this is an action-packed episode, not only on my show, but also on Travis's show. I hope you enjoy it. Kara is incredible. The first book that I picked up that she wrote was many years ago. It's a journal called Strong, so I also encourage you to check that out. And here we go. Here is Kara Goucher. Kara, Travis and I are so excited to get to talk to you today. Thanks, Sonia. I'm excited to be here. Well, I think we all were just talking about Boulder and how we've all lived there at the same time. How are you finding living there now? I love living in Boulder. You know, we moved back here for my running in January 2014 when I was trying to make a third Olympic team. And we didn't know if we would stay long term or not. But we quickly like fell back into our own routines. And it's so nice to have the sun and it's easy to get everywhere and there's running out your door. And so we love it. And I don't really see us leaving. So we really like it here. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book. And I'm sure it took an immense amount of courage to write that and to find your voice. And the first question that I wanted to ask is, what have you learned about yourself through the process of writing the book? That I hadn't dealt with a lot of stuff that I needed to. I think writing the book was something I wanted to do. It's interesting. I was listening to Travis talk to Steve Magnus earlier, and he was talking about how so many other people were telling his story. And that was really my motivation. I was so tired of other people talking about me, people who had never met me, people who are like revered in the writing community and the running community. And that was really my purpose was like, I'm going to go insane unless I'm finally able to tell my story. But I think I worked on it for almost four years. And during that time, I realized there was a lot of things that I hadn't really truly dealt with and healed from. And so it, yeah, I ended up in therapy, but not in a bad way, just like you know, you're kind of opening up Pandora's box, you're feeling things you've never really felt. And so I think for me, the biggest thing was I learned like, wow, I thought I had dealt with all that stuff, but I really truly hadn't. And I and the book kind of forced me to do that. Yeah. Good for you, Carrie. Uh, and congratulations on the book. I mean, it's awesome. We both enjoyed it. Uh, here you are. It's been uh, like two months since it hit shelves. Um, I'm sure that you've been crazy and busy and uh, traveling. And I told my mom, I was like, hey, mom, I'm going to talk with Kara. And she's like, oh, Kara, I heard her on NPR. And so uh, anyway, <laughs> even my mom listened to you, Kara. So Way to go. And way to go on therapy. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. Pretty soon. I know, Kara, you have a podcast, you and uh, Des Linden. I listened to some of that preparing. Uh, congratulations. It's really good stuff. Pretty soon, you're going to be doing podcasts with your therapist because that's what I've done. You know, a couple years into this podcasting thing, I'm like, man, this is like <laughs> Stacy. She has so much good stuff. I got to like get her on here. So uh, anyway, that's It your, is funny, uh, isn't it? Like I'll say stuff like when I'm doing interviews that literally... 
is Claudia, my therapist. <laughs> exactly. Like literally I'm like, and then I'll say something. I'll go, well, I like actually stole that from someone else who drilled it <laughs> yeah. into my head and helped me yeah. see things a different way. But That's yeah. Right. And then they say, Carrie, you've developed so much wisdom. And you're like, well, yeah, I don't know. Someone said that to me yesterday. Like, right, right. Well, well, I was crying. So, <laughs> so true. Anyway, that's that's how I do it. But yeah, I'm I'm just uh, we're saying that all three of us lived in Boulder at the same time. I bet there was a time in probably 2005, Kara Goucher's running down the Boulder Creek path, and she almost gets hit by this crazy mountain biker named Sonia Looney. You know, and uh, and I was up. Uh, who knows what I was doing? I was probably running the trails or something by that time. But uh, yeah, lots of lots of good memories. Lots of I want to say, Kara, thanks to you and Adam for the role you played at CU in the late nineties during the running with the Buffaloes era. This was, uh, you know, this famous book, or at least in, in the running, you know, lore by Chris Lear. And it talked about you guys and, and especially Adam was like the main character. And I graduated from high school and, and I read that. And I was like, I could run with the Buffaloes. I'm going to go and try out, you know? And, uh, and I did. So anyway, uh, thanks for creating a, an important step in my life as a, as a kid. Well, you're then. welcome. I don't, I'm not even sure if I I'm in that book. I was on the team, um, but it was obviously focused on the men's team and Adam. And, you know, those are just great memories. I had such a great college experience. And so, yeah, I feel lucky to have had the experience I had. So, Kara, I wanted to ask you, in the book, there's a through line of female camaraderie and the racers supporting one another. And that isn't the case in a lot of sports. So where do you think that comes from? I think I was lucky to have that early on. My high school teammates were so invested in my happiness and my success and me running as the as best as I could and not just because it helped the team like they actually cared about me. And so I think having that experience early on really made me constantly try to seek that out and I'm so glad I had that experience because I did have experience with women that weren't you know awesome that were a little bit more competitive or just difficult. But so I knew it could. Ex- I knew it existed, and so I feel like I was always sort of seeking that, and I was lucky to have it a few times throughout my career. But I learned so much from other women and having other women support me, and just what we can do together when we actually work together versus just one person by themselves. I think that's when the really powerful stuff happens. Conversations shift, things change, and yeah, I think it all started in Duluth with my sisters and then my my teammates. Yeah, this is something I've thought about a lot of making the pie bigger instead of protecting your sliver of the pie. And that can be really hard sometimes. Like there can be people that you're helping that surpass you and they're achieving the dream that you wanted for yourself, but that shouldn't take away from you. And competition could be a zero sum game where you think, oh, everybody's going to just take what's mine. So you've mentioned that you have bumped up against maybe that, that kind of feeling or that kind of vibe from somebody else. So what do you do when you're in that situation so that you can be open and make the pie bigger. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I didn't always feel that way. I have, I felt a lot of times in my career that I had to protect my piece of the pie. Like, hey, there's not very much pie. I need, to, And I have a slice and I don't really want to share this. So it, I think it came with more experience. And as I got older, and then again, reflecting back on my beginnings, I think for me, what's been really cool to see, like, obviously, I come from the distance running background, marathoning and track. And what's happened in the U.S., women's side over the last decade has been unbelievable achievement after unbelievable achievement after unbelievable achievement. But 
what has been really cool to see is that Emma Coburn's world championship win didn't take away from Jenny Simpson's. And Des Linden's Boston win didn't take away from Shalane Flanagan's New York win. And so I think that's what I really love is that we're starting to see that lots of people can be successful and someone else's success. It does not diminish what you did or the role you've played or, or anything about your career. It just means that lots of people get to be successful. And I, I think that's been a shift that we've seen. You know, it used to kind of be like, oh, well, there's Dina you know, or well, there's Kara or there's Shalane. And now it's kind of like, I mean, if you told me right now, name the top five marathoners in the US female side, I would be like, uh, I need to think. And I think that's a good thing because it shows that we can all be successful together. I found that with women's mountain biking as well. And thanks for saying that you haven't always felt that way. I also have not always felt that way. And it's something that I've really had to work on. And it is so cool to see what happens in the snowball effect of realizing that somebody's win doesn't take away from you. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's hard at first, right? You're like you've worked so hard for this thing and maybe someone accomplishes it before you or you don't accomplish that and they do. And you feel like, ah, oh, that's not fair. Or what, what did I do wrong? But again, I, I don't know if it's age or what, but you just I've gotten to this point where it's like, let's just celebrate everybody. You know, like how cool is it that all sorts of people are smashing their dreams? Like that's good. That invites more people in and that means the next generation is going to be even bigger. Yeah. And that makes me think about in your book, you talked about Adam and how you both were at the Nike Oregon project and you started surpassing him rapidly in your career and he had to move more of into a supporting role. How was that on your marriage? Because I imagine that uh, between two competitive people, that must have been really challenging. Yeah, it, it was really hard because for a lot of reasons, one of which was just like the dynamic shifted overnight, right? Like he was the breadwinner and I was his little wife and I carried his spikes and I got into the races that he chose to run in, not the other way around. And then all of a sudden I was making the money and I was on the magazine. So that, of course, is hard. I don't care who you are. It's just weird. But I think he felt other things were also happening. Like he felt like his career was kind of ending or going away he didn't want while mine was ascending. And so that obviously we were, we were in a different place. I was like, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm successful here. He was like, I don't think this is the right place for me. So it was really challenging. And I'm trying to think how long we've been married. We'll have been married 23 years this September. And I think that that is what dedication looks like. Like Adam is my favorite person and I trust him more than anyone. And that doesn't mean that it's always been smooth sailing. I would say 2008 was an extremely, extremely difficult year for us as a married couple as we sort of navigated what does this look like? What does it mean? How do we show support of each other when we aren't achieving our own success or, you know, whatever? It, that was probably the most challenging year of our life as a married couple. Um, but we've had challenges since like we're like any other married couple. We, you know, there's challenges that arise, but we're just, we both really respect each other. And I think that's really important is that we always keep that respect. So there were hard times, but we, we were committed together to work through them. Yeah. Kara, it's super inspiring to hear that. Thank you for sharing it. I, I want to ask one follow-up question about Adam. Cause you know, again, I read running with the Buffaloes and then I had a two year period where I was on the, the team at CU. You and Adam were kind of around. You had graduated. You were young pro runners. You were kind of maybe partial assistant coaches. And uh, sometimes Adam would come out and run with us with the men's team for a workout or a long run or whatever. And, and like 
during those two years, if you had asked me like, who is the coolest person on the planet? I mean, it was probably Adam Goucher. Cause like, here's, you know, he's the older guy. He's the pro like the, when he was there for the run, it's like the level rose and every, you, all of a sudden you're like, Oh man, I gotta like run fast and be cool. And, and, and whatever. And he also, you know, by, I don't know Adam very well at all. And, and obviously haven't, you know, talked to him much in the last 20 years, but like naturally he's a pretty intense guy. He's like super competitive. And at least at that time, that's how, you know, he ran in a, in a, you know, I don't know if angry is the right word, but I mean, you know, he was like, you know, that hard charger kind of guy. And I just, I kind of want to double click on that, that, you know, roles within a family. I, I went through a few years that were really hard for me where my wife's career was, was growing at a faster rate. She was working out of the home. I was working at home and we had two young kids and, and just because of like, the logistics, you know, this isn't what we planned. It's not what we intended, but like, who is the person who is available to like keep kids alive during the day? And and it was me. That for me w- was, was very hard. It wasn't something I anticipated. I mean, it was really, really hard. I was able, you know, over the years to embrace it a little more and my kids got older and, you know, now they go to school during the day. So <laughs> that made it easier. How, um, it seems to me, reading between the lines again in in your new book, The Longest Race, so which listeners got to buy, it's available wherever books are sold. Boulder Bookstore, they have like you know, boom, huge poster right in the front. Go get it there. You know, was that tough for Adam? Was he able to embrace it a little more? Uh, you know, and in hindsight, was he like, oh, that's you know, I put in the work and I'm proud to proud to do that. Being like, of what part, his career or like the parenting part? Yeah, more. I yeah, I guess that maybe the parenting part, and and or or was that I don't know. Was was I? I guess I could imagine you're you know running as a pro. You're you're traveling. You're training. I think he was coaching you some at yeah. times, which is great and maybe could yeah. Be tough. He actually would pace me a lot. He never officially coached me, and even my coaches would okay. be like, "You're so hard on Adam, but not on like Arlen, the other pacer I had." And it would be like if we're doing quarters and he was out two seconds fast, I'd get so mad. Or if we were three seconds slow, I'd get so mad because for him, he can just switch it real quick. But for me now, I'm like, you know, whatever. And but it was true. It was Salazar actually that said, you are really hard on him. So it was kind of like, this isn't the best situation. You know, like, I, why am I mad at you? It's because I'm frustrated that the pace isn't perfect. And because you're my husband, I can say it. If you're anyone else, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to say, thanks for coming. Thanks for helping me, you know? So I think all those things were yeah. hard, but good to learn. And I think it was interesting to hear you talk about the parenting side. Like Adam wanted to be a father so badly and I wanted to be a mother so badly. And we had we had talked it through with, with my, our coach and we thought we would do it right after the 08 Olympics. And then I decided to run the marathon and then that went well and it kept getting pushed off. And you know, I think Adam worried like I'm, I was never going to have this baby, even though I wanted it very, very badly myself. So when finally I felt like I was re- ready, you know, we went through fertility treatment and I got pregnant. And at first our, our plan was that Adam would take care of Colton when I went to practice and that Adam mm. would train in the afternoon or very mm. late morning when I got back. But it very, it became clear pretty quickly that even though he wanted to be there and he loved being with our son, he still needed his own time and his own place where he felt like he was progressing towards his own goals. And so when Colt was about three months old, that's when we hired a nanny, which we originally hadn't thought we would do that. But it just became important that Adam was able to have the mornings, whether it was like for his business, run the year or run the edge at the time, or if it was his own running, he was trying to make 
not necessarily come back, but he was trying to get back and healthy. It just, he needed that time and it needed to be structured in a way that where it was important, not like, oh, sorry, I was late. It's 1230. I thought I'd be back by 10 and, and now you get to go. So what we did is we had a nanny in the morning and then when we got back, she left and in the afternoon we traded runs, but that was no big deal, yeah. you know. Good. Good for you guys for being yeah. intentional. But you have yeah. to be able to admit it. You have to like be able to talk to each other, right? Like you have to be able to say, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I, I love our child and I love everything, but like I don't, I feel like I'm losing myself. I mean, I think we hear women say that a lot. But I, it happens to dads too, and he had to be able to say that, like, "Hey, I, this isn't what, this doesn't feel the way I thought it was going to feel, and I really need some help." And it ended up being great because then we got to spend more time together again. Nice, another good book, "Run uh, Running the Edge," right by Adam Goucher and I think yeah. Tim Catalano. Great book. That's a book that I often recommend, especially to younger runners. I think it's kind of the audience in mind is more of the high school or collegiate runner. It's really good. A lot of, a lot of good runner geek mindset stuff good, in there for you. sure. It is good. There's so many different things yeah. that we could talk about, but you just talked about pregnancy. And I wanted to ask you about this because whenever you're a professional athlete, especially at the level that you were running at, there's, it seems like there's never a good time to have a baby. And like you said, you can keep putting it off forever. So how did you decide now is the time to have it? And also you can't control necessarily when you're going to get pregnant too. So how did you think about all that stuff? So I thought I would do it after an Olympic Games because that was my childhood dream. But then I became intrigued with the marathon. So I, I thought, you know, I had talked to my coach about this with Adam, that I'll run the Beijing Olympics, I'll run the New York City Marathon in November. And then you know, I'll, I'll try. And, and like you said, you don't know. I, I knew I was going to have to go through fertility treatment. Maybe it would take one time. Maybe it would take a lot more, you know. But then after I ran New York, I felt like I had discovered this new thing that I loved so much. And it was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be done right now. And I'm not done, but I don't know if I want to take a break from this right now. And so I decided to run the Boston Marathon. And, and then it was like, that's it. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. Then I'm going to go through fertility treatment. Well, then you know, the Boston Marathon didn't go quite how I wanted. And I, I thought maybe I could have a shot at redemption at world championships. So I guess I ran a marathon in November, April, and then in August, or maybe it was September. No, it was in August. And um, I got done with that race and it didn't go how I wanted. And I remember Adam was like expecting me to say, I'm just going to run New York and then I'll take a break. But instead I was like, I'm done. I'm hitting my head against the wall trying to force something to happen. Obviously, this isn't the time where I'm going to win a major or a world championship. Like I need, like I can't do this, and I'm not even really enjoying it because I'm so focused on what I think will make people believe I'm a great marathoner that I'm not even really like enjoying the process anymore. And and so it just came to a point. But there's never a good time, right? You know, you're a mom. There's never a perfect time, and it really is sort of a feeling. And at that time. I, I felt like my team wanted me to keep going. Like we need to master this marathon thing before you go away for a year. But finally, I just, I just knew. And I, you know, the start of the fertility cycle when you're in treatment is to take estrogen. And I had brought it to Berlin. I didn't know if I would take it. And I mean, immediately after the race, when I got back to my hotel room, I just took it. It was just like my, I knew in my gut, this is the time. But of course, I still had like this six month period. Like if I can't get pregnant in these six months, then it's going to have to wait until after London. So it's very complicated, way more complicated and like dialed in, I think, than most people realize. I mean, what about with you? Like, did you plan 
the time? Like, were you looking at a calendar thinking this is a good opportunity to, to do that? Or was it, did you just go, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant? No, it was definitely something that I thought about. And in, in fact, I didn't want kids whenever I first got married to my husband and over, I, and I told him that. And over time, it was something that I realized, well, maybe I do kind of want this. And it was three years before we even started trying to get pregnant that I thought, okay, in three years, because there's all these things that I want to do. And I even, I don't recommend this, but I, I said yes to everything in those years. So I went full, like full gas to the point of burning myself out. And after I felt so burnt out, I thought now I'm ready for a break. And I knew I needed to swing the balance so far out of balance to know that I would want to slow down a little bit to try to have kids. But it was stressful because you just, again, you don't know when you're going to get pregnant. And if people are inviting you to a race at six months away, you don't know if you can say yes or not, because you don't know what your future is, but you also don't want to tell, I, I didn't want to tell people that I was trying to have. Oh a yeah. I didn't want to tell people either. So, I mean, like everyone in my closest yeah. environment knew, and I was still going to the track and working out, but I, you know, I remember Alberto told the media before the Boston marathon that that would be my last marathon because I was trying to have a baby, which didn't even end up being true. But I felt like that's my decision to tell and just like you said, like, what if you don't get pregnant? You don't want people like discounting you for a year. It's tricky. I think that the, it is shifting a little bit where we're talking about it more. We're accepting that people can have children and still be high level athletes. And, and there isn't so much like taboo around it or worrying around it as, as at least that I experienced. But those are the conversations that need to happen. Just like you said, you know, we're talking about a, a race in six months. I really want to be there. There's a possibility I won't. But you don't you shouldn't have to say that, right? Like you should say, yeah, I think I can do that. And then if you get pregnant, you're like, nah, I can't do that. But I yeah, it's just it's complicated. It's really complicated. And it's been interesting for me to see this last crop. Like there was the Tokyo Olympics and then there were world champs in the US last summer. And then all of a sudden all these women were pregnant, like Brenda Martinez, Ellie St. Pierre. Kate Grace. I know I'm forgetting someone else. Molly Huttle had a baby like a year and a half earlier. Like it was just like this group of women that were the best in the United States all went, I'm going to take a break. I'll be back. I'll see you when I'm ready to be back. And it was really cool to see them embrace that and just go for it. Yeah. I feel like that's happened in mountain biking as well. And you like, I was really grateful for the stuff that you had put out there and Lauren Fleshman, because there wasn't really many examples of people doing that. And I think you said discounting you for a year, but I think that people will discount you forever, <laughs> even after you have the kid, because they think, well, you have kids now, so now you can't perform or you can't be the way that you yeah. were. But, you, but I want to get back to your story because you continue training through your pregnancy. Can you talk about that experience and like how Nike treated you as well? I, I want to hear from both of you on that. You too, Sonia, because you have a very compelling story as also as a sponsored professional athlete. And I think it's important to hear both stories because they're two different sports, but it sounds like you had a similar-ish experience. So I, I everybody at Nike knew I wanted to have a baby. Everybody knew. Everyone was involved in my business. But there was no language about pregnancy or maternity in my contract. And, and I remember... When I graduated from CU, I went to Nike for a visit. And I remember Adam was my fiance at the time. We weren't married yet. But I remember he asked in this meeting, like, well, what happens if she gets pregnant? And I remember being so mad at him, being like, why would you say that? I, I, you know, again, we're talking about the pie. I'm like, don't F up my piece of the pie. you know. <laughs> but he was just way ahead of his time because he was like, well, you're going to run for a long time. And like, at some point, you're going to want to have a baby. So 
there was no pregnancy in the contract, the Nike contract I had. And my coach, Alberto Salazar, went to John Capriati, who was in charge of all the contracts. And he said, what's going to happen to Kara's contract? And he said, don't even go there. Just tell her to stay relevant. Do all the appearances she needs to do. So it started great. Like I kept my pregnancy a secret from the public. Nike announced it through on the New York Times sports section on Mother's Day. So I was like one week away from being halfway through my pregnancy. But then it was like I was doing photo shoots and I was being loved on and everything was so great. And so I thought like, oh, this is amazing. This is how it should be. And then I just stopped getting paid. Like I wasn't even notified and get an email or a phone call. And actually, it was my financial advisor that called and said, Kara, you haven't been paid. I said, what? That can't be right. And so when and I you're find- on billboard stuff, right? Right that oh. time, there's pictures. Here's Kara pregnant, Nike runner up on billboards, and, oh, and they're saying it's a medical disability, right? Yes, yes. And so I, I thought something has to be wrong. Like I, I've upended my, my end of the deal. I'm not. I'm like I don't understand what's happening here. But I was essentially told that I was suspended, and they didn't know for how long. And it, you know, that they paid me to race, not to. And so I started you know, behind the scenes, meeting with people, meeting with lawyers, meeting with a Nike lawyer who, you know, on one hand told me that they pay me to run. I have no value outside of that. On the other hand, emailed me later saying his daughter would look up to me. I mean, it was just so confusing, you know? And in the end, I I did go after I had Colt, there was still no resolution. I was still not being paid. I had been told I was going to get that they were doing the right thing by reducing an 18 month, no pay suspension to 12 months. And I was like, pissed. I was like, that is not the right thing. So I actually went all the way to Mark Parker, who I had a relationship with. I had flown with him on the Nike jet a couple of times. He was the CEO at the time thinking like, I'm desperate. I have to go to him because he's going to fix this situation. And in the end, he didn't. He said, I trust my crew and everyone feels like what they're offering you is fair. But I felt like I was going crazy. Like literally, I felt like I was going crazy. Like every everyone that I was talking to wanted to interview me and wanted to shoot me and talk about this motherhood story. But then I was being told every day that I had no value until I got back to high level competition. So it was super crazy. In the end, I I got a lawyer and it I got it reduced to six months, but I had to add a year to my contract. And I was I was bitter about it from that day on, and I will admit it. I was like, I would I will never resign with this company. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I was listening to your book on audiobook on my bike ride last week and how many times I got goosebumps or even like choked up at tears and anger, just so much outrage as to some of these things that you've had to endure in your life and how much courage it took to speak out about these things and how speaking out about these things is going to change the world and it already is changing the world and helping others find their voice too. Totally. Like when I first, I would just say little things here and there about what happened during my pregnancy and and no one, it would be printed, but nothing would really come from it. And it wasn't until Alicia Montano decided to do the basically dream maternity video with the New York Times. And then I was, there was an article that ran with it and I offered my story in with that. And like overnight, it started this huge conversation. But at that point, it was still 50-50. Like some people were like, you think you should get paid to sit around and eat bonbons? And other people were like, what? what year is it? How are these women not getting paid? But then a week later, Allison Felix joined the conversation. And that's when I really learned the power of women building on each other. Because when Allison Felix said that, it was like overnight companies were rewriting their contracts. People, you know, I got amendments from the brands I worked with 
not Wazelle because they already had protection. But from the other brands I worked with, I got amendments to my contract. And it took, I think it took three or four months, but eventually Nike amended their contract as, as well. And that's when I really learned like, the more voices you have, it's easy to call one or two people bitter or spoiled or whatever you want to say. But the more women that line up, and especially someone like Allison Felix, who's just so revered, the more people that stand up, it's like, it's undeniable. This is wrong. You know, this is really, really mm-hmm. wrong. And how did we ever think this was okay? I mean, I was told you're not getting paid because of your medical condition. They would never use the word pregnancy or child or, you know, it was always your medical condition that kept you out. So it was wild. But what was your experience like? I saw a little sneak peek of a video where you talked a little bit about it. But what was your experience like? Yeah, I I don't want to dominate the podcast talking about myself because I want this to be about you. Um, So I'll share just quickly. So my contracts were really different than yours. Like I have lots of individual smaller contracts that I go and I seek out myself. And I I didn't have any contract that was mid-contract when I announced my pregnancy, but I have to renegotiate my contracts every one to two years. And I really did not want to tell anybody that I was pregnant. I had said to my husband, I just wish I could just be pregnant and just nobody ever know because I don't want to face the music of what's going to happen. And I had been managing myself as an athlete for, I don't even know how long, probably like eight years or, or six years. And people just suddenly were evaporated. Like people wouldn't even respond to my emails for months at a time. And I'd be laying awake at night anxious. Like, I don't even know why, like, I want the respect of just even a response. And many sponsors didn't renew. And I also wasn't able to replace those sponsors. So that was very frustrating. And it gets even more complicated because I had my son March, 2020. (laughs) So I had my baby in the middle of a pandemic. And then the border was closed in 2021 in Canada where I live. So I couldn't come back to the States to race when everybody else was racing. So, you know, my story is not a happy ending. I still have a greatly reduced amount of sponsorships and it's embarrassing to admit this, but I've been trying to say it out loud more is I haven't had a bike sponsor since I first became pregnant. And I know that I bring a lot of value. So yeah, it's, it's been really challenging. And also reminding myself that it's not just, this is not just about me. Like there is a, a, a crop of mountain biking, mountain bike females who are having babies and they are getting support. So I'm happy to see that. And I can be sad for myself at the same time without giving up. Yeah. That makes me sad to hear though, because I'm talking about 12 years ago and you're talking about three years ago. And that makes me feel like the the work we did in track and field, it should have it should have trickled onward. And it sounds to me like it hasn't. So I don't know. That bums me out. I'm sorry to hear that. It's getting better, though. Let me ask you both this. Uh, um, you know, most men probably know how to start a pregnancy. <laughs> A lot of men, though, wouldn't see like uh, this, like this. I hate the term like women's issue. Like this is not a women's issue. This is like it's it's important to everyone. Right. You know, uh, like you're you're uh, many men like women. Many most men have women who are friends or family or, you know, I I think about my daughter and like what world do I want her to live in? either of you, what can men do here? And and especially like from the perspective of a male athlete, you know, would it be like a male athlete saying, you know, I'm not going to sign with this company unless I see that the women's contracts, uh, you know, have certain stipulations in there, you know, that are in support of, you know, pregnant athletes. What do you, what do you think? Any, any thoughts on that? Anything that you've seen men do to um, just make things better? I think just, 
I mean, you can say that. You can say, show me your maternity protection. But I think even just having you as an ally, like sharing the stories, like the fact that you're having me talk about this on your podcast, elevating Sonia's story, like that that's another way that you can help is just like elevating the story that's there and saying, this is wrong, you know, and rallying your troops around it so that, you know, your friends are like, wow, that's crazy. That's not fair. You know, in my own personal experience, like I had to run the Boston Marathon to start getting paid again, basically. And Adam started getting up for the four o'clock feeding, even though he was still trying to make his own success as an athlete. But he said, hey, this is more important right now. You need to be able to sleep from midnight till eight or whatever it was. I'm going to do that. And and then even having my back when I would talk to a race and I would say, well, I need a, th- a second hotel room and a th- third plane ticket because my husband is my comfort person. And the night before, I need him to be with me and I need someone else to be there with my child. And, you know, I got a lot of like, well, can't yeah. you just leave him at home? And it was like, no, he like, he had like, how's he going to eat? <laughs> how's he going to be alive? <laughs> yeah. You know, like I need him to come actually. So just that kind of stuff. And Adam uh-huh. was always really supportive, like kicking off emails being like, we need this extra hotel room and plane ticket or we just can't come. So just like having that support makes a huge difference too. And also the dynamic of power and Kara, this is definitely in your book. Like there are mostly men in in places of power making decisions and making decisions on women's behalf. So that is something that men can do is working to change the narrative around the fact that women are powerful and women can still be pregnant and have babies and continue to be powerful. And that we need to support women, not take away because we think they're going to be less than if they have kids. Yes. I, the roadblocks that I faced, they shocked me because the story that was being told is like, women can do anything. You can make the Olympic team and have a baby. Isn't it amazing? You're a mom and an athlete. But yet it was roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Like, no, your son can't be in our daycare. No, we can't give you another ticket. No, you you know, and it was just, it, it made it so much harder than it needed to be. And there, the story was relatable to so many people and so many people were listening. And so, yeah, when I look back at that, I do feel sad for myself because I felt very, very trapped and I felt like I had to just keep pursuing. I felt like you said, Sonia, I felt like it was bigger than me. I felt like, well, I can't fail now because then they're going to be able to say, we'll see what happens. So I have to just keep marching forward and I have to get the job done because I feel like I... You know, if I don't, then I'm going to be the person they use as an excuse the next time Next time someone wants to have a baby. I feel like I have a one and three year old. So I, I, I carry that around with me every time I line up for a race. And I know some of my other friends with babies also are carrying that around with them. Yeah, it's crazy. It shouldn't be like that. Yeah. So I think we should change gears here a little bit. I mentioned you were around lots of guys. Nike Oregon Project was completely male dominated. You were the only female there. And you mentioned the pressure to be one of the guys and also having to endure sexual abuse under that thinking, well, like, you know, all the guys are undraped in the massage. So I guess that's okay for me. What would you say to people who are feeling that pressure to be one of the guys? Because there's many women who are in male dominated organizations. It's really hard. And I think one of the things that this book has helped me relate to so many women is not just in running, obviously, right? It's like the world we live in. And they could see themselves, even though they're not runners or they're not athletes, they could see themselves in what I was saying. Like, I I don't necessarily even like who I was some of the time back then because I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I didn't want to be left out of anything. So I would hear the comments. I would hear the jokes. I would just laugh it off. 
I think one thing when I, and I, you know, like part of like healing from all of this is being forgiving and reminding myself, you know, like for instance, when I didn't say anything to Alberto when we were alone together getting massage, like I was trying to survive and I give myself grace that I like in that moment, my choices were very, very limited and I did what I had to do to be safe and to get through it. But looking back, I try to give myself a lot of grace too. But I will say, I always had a pang in my stomach of like, oh, I hate this. I hate that they're talking about me like this. I hate that these jokes are going off all around me. I hate that I pretend like I don't care. And so it, you have intuition for a reason. And I think I, as athletes, we bury a lot of things because we nothing can get in the way of what our goal is. But I wish I hadn't buried my intuition so much. And when you have those feelings or those little alarm bells, they're there for a reason. And they're telling you, this is, this is not acceptable. This is not right. You like, this isn't where you want to be. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to the fact of being in a room with people saying lots of things. I, I, I've been in that situation many times where people are saying inappropriate things about you and your body. And you're like, I, I don't even know what to do here. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing is like, now I'm 44 and I just don't care. And I'd be like, shut up. I can't believe, you know, I, did you really just say that? But I would have never have said that back then. Because again, as we were talking about the pie earlier, like I'm in this ecosystem and I'm, I'm constantly reminded of how lucky I am to be here. And so this is the price you have to pay to make it. This is the price you have to pay to have that piece of the pie. But the reality is that's not true. And that's and if it is, then that situation is completely unhealthy and those people are inappropriate. But I just couldn't see that for myself. I felt like this is just what it takes. Like if you want to go to the top, you just have to you have to deal with this stuff. Yeah. I carry uh, you have intuition for a reason. I, I I like that. And that's powerful. And and for I can guarantee that it, you know I don't know exactly what was happening or the locker room talk or whatever, but I can guarantee some of the men there they had that intuition as well. Like this mm-hmm. joke, this comment, this whatever, you know, this is not okay. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the man with courage is the one who says something, and and whether that's speaking up boldly in front of the whole group, whether it's talking with uh, you know the peer or the coach afterwards one on one whether it's, you know, reporting it to the HR or, or coming and talking to you as an ally, like, Hey, this isn't okay. Like, you know, how can we, um, address this together? Like that's a, that's a huge role in, in generating change, you know? And, and pro- I mean, I would venture to say like, maybe most of the people weren't comfortable for it, you know, yeah. usually it's like, Hey, there's someone who's kind of leading the way and oh this is, this is funny or like, it's getting me attention or whatever. You know, that doesn't mean that the people like it and the, and the uh, you know, the triumph of evil occurs when when good people do do nothing like it really comes down to the bystanders. Yeah. And I, I'm not mad at any of my old teammates or anything. I just because I think most of them were uncomfortable. I think you're 100 percent right. There's certain lock. We, we can call it locker room talk. That's just funny. You're living with people. Things are going to happen. You're going things you laugh about things. But there also then is this line that's crossed where it's very inappropriate and and it is just very uncomfortable. And I do think that a lot of my teammates felt that. I remember being at the track and. Alberto was talking about the change in the size of my breasts throughout the workout. I was nursing my son and he was trying to get actually Steve Magnus to like join in and and joke. And Steve was like horrified. And, you know, he didn't say stop, but he didn't join in. And that was a step right there was a step because everyone else was like, oh, yeah, it's crazy, you know, because they were uncomfortable, too. 
But so sometimes it's even just not joining in is a statement in itself. All right, friends. Well, that concludes the first half of this podcast episode. And if you are ready to hear the next leg of Kara's journey, make sure that you check out part two of our conversation on the Travis Macy show, where Kara offers insights into battling imposter syndrome, the thrill of winning an Olympic medal, how to embrace autonomy and joy in running while holding the weight of expectations. Plus, Kara shares advice for parents navigating disordered eating and body image with young athletes. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you are enjoying the show and to share it with your friends. Your reviews and your word of mouth go a very long way on helping the show reach others and all the time that the guests spend coming on the podcast to spread their messages far and wide. Thank you so much for being a part of my community and I look forward to figuring out even more ways to bring value to you in the near future. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week. 